0: A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life, or who have a relationship with the Baha'i faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Janabi Caldwell, a Baha'i who, after World War II, got his engineering degree and became a research scientist. Soon after, he and his wife and young children moved to the Aleutian Islands to help the Baha'i faith. Janabi describes the difficulties of living on the Aleutian Islands and the miraculous circumstances of his departure. Janabi is also an author. His books include The Aleut, from night to night and in the heart of words. I started the interview by asking Janabi where he grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: I was born in Butte, Montana. Of course, I only was there until I was 16 and 17 years old, and then I went into World War II.
0: What was your childhood like?
1: Butte, Montana is a mile high and is a mining town, so it's a tough place to live.
0: How was it tough?
1: Of course, it was right at the end of the, de- the Big Depression. The winters there, they got down to like 54 or 56 degrees below zero Fahrenheit. So it was cold winters and uh, no food because the, the Great Depression was on. So the beginning of my life was really, really tough.
0: Did your father work?
1: When I was born, my father was working as a, ch- a chef at a big hotel. And, of course, uh, the Depression came on. They were the first people that got laid off. So he didn't work. All during that depression time, he didn't work.
0: And how about your mother?
1: Mother didn't work either. She had her own garden and that kind of stuff. She had mm-hmm. her own chickens. and it was uh, We got around by horse and buggy. you mm-hmm. got to understand now, we're talking about 83 years ago.
0: <laughs> so this must have been like in the 30s, right?
1: Yeah, the, the late 20s.
0: Can you describe a little bit more how it was hard during the Depression?
1: The Depression, of course, most people don't understand it. And, you know, the days of horse and buggies were still around. Model T's hadn't come into, they were starting in about that time. And so we had Model T Ford. So transportation was difficult. You either got a carriage or you walked. and Most of the time we walked. That's all the way we got around Not our only transportation. And Butte being a mining town, of course, it was one of the mines all closed down. So all those workers, people were out of work. So it was a really tough time.
0: So did you go to school? Yeah. And what was school like?
1: Well, probably like it is today. You went through grade school, high school there.
0: And so you said you joined the service?
1: Yeah, I went into the Navy at the beginning of World War II.
0: And what was that experience like?
1: I wouldn't recommend it to anybody, <laughs> and they say that uh, if we have another war, why it's going to be worse than that one. And that was plenty, plenty serious. I hate to see it happen again, because all of us that was in the war, we said we're not going to let it happen again. and yet in just a few years after World War II ended, we were in the Korean War, then the Vietnamese War, and yeah. you know it's just been going on and on and on, and I don't think we have learned our lesson.
0: So you said you joined the Navy, was it?
1: Yeah, I went into the US, United States Navy.
0: Where were you stationed during World War II?
1: The Pacific. The horror story. There ain't much to tell. It just yeah. was just a horror story. man killing man is right. unbelievable. And you see, the, the our so-called enemy, the Japanese at that time, is, they were scraping the bottom of the barrel to get recruits, and so they're taking 14- and 15-year-old kids and sending them out there to be slaughtered. So it was really a horror story. There's not much more you can say about that right. thing, Warren, because it was really horrific. You can't really dwell on that yeah. type of thing. It just All you can say is we should sit down at the table and we should take and work ourselves into a, an attitude of world peace, The financial failure and all, all this kind of stuff, and that's because man's not so willing to sit down with his brother and think globally and act globally, and it has to come where we have a single currency, and we have to have a single uh, weights and measures and all these kind of things that you know we learned that we need for a future civilization. We have to sit down and talk about it. We can't go just go on killing each other.
0: You were in the Navy until the end of the war?
1: Right to the end of the war, yes. I, even after the end of the war, I was in for a few months before we got mustered out. And after the war, of course, I ended up going... Uh, the Baha'is had a, uh, this word came out that we had to take these teachings of love and unity and peace around the world. Mm -hmm. I ended up going out to the Aleutian Islands, which is uh, 800 miles out of Anchorage going towards Japan, Mm -hmm. those islands across the top of the world. And so right after the war, I ended up with my wife and three babies and going out to the Aleutian Islands.
0: All right, so... Janabi, we've skipped the whole part about how you ran into the Baha'i faith in the first place.
1: Okay, now, of course, I didn't run into it. You understand, my mother and father were already Baha'is before I was born.
0: Okay, so let's start with that. How did your mother and father run into the Baha'i faith?
1: Well, there was a lady, this lady, her name was Martha Root. And as Martha Root, she was a, a very special lady, because when Baha'i said, let's get Take this message around the world. Martha Root was already traveling around the world, and the Guardian sent her to Shanghai, China. I mm-hmm. just remember I got to you the Guardian was the center of our faith at that particular time. He became Guardian in 1921. Anyway, the Guardian had sent Martha Root, this lady, to Shanghai, mm-hmm. and he gave her instructions as you go to, across the United States. I want you to stop at every capital city. Uh, you get off the train, give the message of Baha'u'llah to the people, and get back on the plane and go on. So you stop at every capital city and give the message. At that time, my mother and father were living in Helena, Montana, which is the capital of Montana. And of course, it being the capital, Martha Root got off the train. She went up to the newspaper and she put a little classified ad in the newspaper new messenger of God has come. Please come to this hotel room. Now, my mother, she didn't see that, but her neighbor saw it, and the neighbor lady came running in with the newspaper in her hand, and, oh, this is so exciting. There's a new message from God. Please, please come with me. And my mother said, oh, no, I'm not interested in religion. I'm happy. I'm a Catholic. I'm not interested in going anyplace. And this woman said, well, you're not going because you you want to go. You're going because you're going to go with me, and I don't want to go alone, and I want you just to come along to keep me company. And so mother said, no, and my little girls are asleep. I can't go. And so this lady said, well, I my teenage daughter, she'll come down and babysit for you, so you come with me. So just to please this other lady, my mother and this other lady, they went to... Uh, this hotel room. And when Mother walked into the room, she said a very plain-looking, ordinary-looking lady was standing there. But the minute she started to speak, she knew she was in the presence of an angel. She just went off on this really, really strong. My mother started raving almost immediately. Oh, my God. And a real angel has come. And God has sent us an angel. Mother got home, and my, and my father came in from work. My mother said, she's raving and running, walking back and forth. Oh, you should have seen her. Oh, you should have heard her. Most wonderful thing has happened. An angel has come to Montana from God. This angel, angel is here. and My father couldn't understand what she was saying, so he calmed her down. He said, now sit down, sit down, take it easy. Take it easy and tell me about this angel. My mother said, well, this angel came and he said that there's a new message from God, it's come directly from God, and she was talking about that, and I don't really understand what she was saying so much. But it's, 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 she surely was an angel of, from God. And so my father said, well, what's the new message from God? I what is it? She handed him a little card, and this card only had ten high principles. The freedom of all prejudice. we got to do away with religious prejudice. We've got to do away with Cultural prejudice, we've got to do away with racial prejudice and any other prejudice we have. Another freedom from all prejudice. Universal education. Every child on the planet Earth is guaranteed an education. That's universal education. Every child is given a good, solid education, and the rest of the world pays for it so that all of our children. Then we have universal language. Universal rates and uh, weights and measures. Of course, the big one is religious freedom, and that's individual investigation of the truth. That means that every human being on the planet Earth, they have to sit down and uh, take a look at these principles.
0: So, your father saw these principles,
1: and he said, These teachings came from no man. These are too progressive for any man to have given these. And on the back of the card, there was this lady's name, and then there was a, it it said on the back of the card, this card was printed by a, a Temple Unity Committee with a New York address. And my father sat down, and he wrote a letter to the Temple Unity Committee, and he said, I want to know more about this new messenger of God. And about three or four months later, here came a letter, and it said, welcome to the Baha'i faith, we're, we're so happy to have a new Baha'i family in, the, in Montana. You're the first Baha'i family in Montana, and we're very happy to have you. And so that's how my mother and father became Baha'i.
0: So was he a little surprised that they welcomed him to the Baha'i faith before he... He accepted it with all his heart. Okay.
1: I don't know how he did that, but <laughs> anyway. <laughs> of course, you understand this was the early part of the faith. Mm-hmm. The only Baha'is we had in the northwest was my mother and father and a cowboy in Montana. Mm-hmm. There was no Baha'is in Idaho, all of Idaho. There was one Baha'i in Spokane, Washington. There was two Baha'is in uh, Seattle, and there was two Baha'is in Portland, Oregon. Mm-hmm. And that's all the only Baha'is in Northwest Washington.
0: And do you remember what year this was?
1: In the early twenties.
0: How did your parents' lives change right after they became Baha'is?
1: And my mother, she could hardly read and write. And my mother was an Indian. She came from the Sioux Nation. My father, he came from Indiana. How did they meet? father was a chef, and my mother was a waitress.
0: And they met. And they at worked the... in
1: the same restaurant. Okay, so
0: back to your story, Janabi. When did you get married?
1: Right after the war, I got back and I uh, got married in uh, Washington State. So I was uh, mustering out in uh, Oregon, and so uh, on weekends I met this girl, and I married her.
0: What were you doing before you left the country?
1: What was I doing in Oregon? Yeah. I was getting out of the military.
0: So then after you got out of the military, this is when you decided to... Go to the Aleutian Islands to help the Baha'i Faith?
1: Yeah, there was no, no Baha'is in this area at all. The guardian that I mentioned before, he asked us to go to these far-out places and mm-hmm. take the message of Baha'u'llah to the world. What was
0: it like when you first landed in the Aleutian Islands?
1: Well, it was really a very difficult place because the first place was the winds. And the wind gets like blowing. It never gets below thirty miles an hour, never. And it usually, it blows up around fifty and sixty miles an hour. And then, on one side of us where we lived, there was a uh, volcano, Akutan volcano. On the other side, there was another volcano. We had two volcanoes on each side of us that caused a lot of earthquakes and small tidal waves. And the uh, ice and snow and sleet and all that kind of stuff was really horrible. So it was a very difficult place. And I, people had asked me how I'm going to live, and I said, "Well, the natives live out there. I guess I'll live like a native." Now, at that particular time, I was working as a research scientist. Okay, so I finished my education. Then I went to school and I became a, an engineer, and I ended up in research. So now I'm a research scientist out in the middle of the Lucian Islands, where they don't even have any electricity.
0: So what did you do?
1: Well, I decided that I'm going to live there. And of course, at the beginning, the Guardian wanted us to go to these places and stay for 10 years. And so uh, I started building me a boat, and I became a fisherman.
0: And how old were your children?
1: When we got to the Aleutian Islands. One was four, one was two, and one was three weeks old.
0: When you married your wife, was she a Baha'i at that time?
1: Oh, yes. Very strong Mm Baha'i. Very dedicated. Mm -hmm.
0: She stayed at home and took care of the house while you went
1: fishing? Well, I didn't go fishing because it was uh, coming on to when we got out there in August, late July, I guess it was late July of 1953. So I started started building a boat so I could fish. Learned to build, build boats, too.
0: And how long did it take you to build that boat?
1: Oh, about... Two months, a month, I guess.
0: Then you started fishing.
1: Uh, well, there was no fish at that particular time because the weather was too bad. The storm blew in, and that storm—the first winter we was there—why, you it, it took your life into your hands if you went out on the beach.
0: So, how did you feed yourself?
1: I, well, the first thing I got a job. There was a, a station with sailors on the station. Went to the only the guy that owned the store and the bar, and then there was a post office. That's all, the only business that was there. So I went to the guy that owned the bar and the, you know, the store, and I asked if he had any work, and he said, well, he could use a bouncer at night. (laughs) So I got a job bouncing in the bar.
0: Were you a big guy?
1: No, I'm not a big guy. I'm five foot ten and a half. I weighed about 140, 50 pounds at that time.
0: But it was enough to be a bouncer.
1: Well, yeah, because they get drunk and couldn't handle themselves. So. <laughs> <laughs> so they really gave me a hard time. I'd yeah. put a hammerlock on them and throw them out in the Bering Sea and cool yeah. them off.
0: So, how did you introduce the Baha'i Faith to the Aleutian Islands?
1: Well, this is a problem. I know now I'm facing a real problem. Now you're getting into the heart of things. Because what really happened, I got out there and there's only 50 families, okay? And the family is, I can't live like the natives live because I'm a, you know, I'm a scientist. So I'm in a between a rock and a hard spot. And I know, in order to keep my family alive out there, it was just really horrible. I said, "Well, you know, our messenger from God, the way I talked about earlier, his name is Baha'u'llah, and Baha'u'llah translated into English means the glory of God." So Baha'u'llah said, "Give the message to the people." And if they accept it, it's to their own best interest. If they reject it, leave them to themselves and pray for them that they may that God may graciously aid them. Okay? So I look around me and I say, hey, this weather, oh, my God, this weather is terrible. You go out and the rain doesn't come down from up. It comes out from over with a strong wind behind it. And the minute the rain hits your rain clothes, it, it turns to ice, and so you're encased in ice. And I said, I don't to stay out here 10 years with my kids and my wife and stuff. I'm going to give the message to these 50 families. i take me, uh, you know, uh, 50 days, and then I've told them, and then I'm going to bug out of here. <laughs> I'm going down to the South Pacific, and they're going to go to Tonga. So that was my plan. But I didn't tell this plan to anybody. I didn't, just my wife and I, we talked about it. And so here came a message from the guardian Do not openly proclaim the message of God in this place. When you have confidence in them and they have confidence in you, slowly, slowly slowly teach them the cause of God. So there went my big plan of the uh, open <laughs> proclamation. And what happened the first few years we were there was, well, I would say at least a year and a half, it was the population had been so treated badly, you know, with having uh, the, the cells killed off and genocide going on against the alley of people for years first by. with the Russians and then enslavement by the Americans that lived there. So, so these people they were filled for hate with hate for any outsider and that's what I had to face in the beginning. it was just it was just really hate. The first years was hate. The second period the second period we went through was acceptance. They accepted us, but they uh, that's as far as it went. And then the acceptance over more years turned into uh, over many years after I was out there for eleven years. So it became love, and we were part of the people that lived there, and we were respected, and all that thing. We, had, when I left the Lucian Islands, we had forty-two Baha'is there.
0: Mm. How long did it take for them to then accept you and love you?
1: Well, that took uh, about nine, eight, nine years. And the
0: second question I have is, can you give me a little history on the genocide of these people?
1: Okay, now what happened, the Aleuts, they had a religion, okay? Now this religion is like all the religions of the world. You know, in the Jewish, God says, I give you this ark, and you uh, take care of the ark, and these Ten Commandments, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Well, in the Aleutian Islands, because of this horrible wind, no trees grow, absolutely no trees. And on the island of Nikolski, that's what it's called today, the island of Nikolski, God gave them a tree. And he said, now you take care of this tree, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. And so the Aleuts, of course, they had to make it once in a lifetime. They were told they should go visit this tree. And so this caused the migration of the Aleut people from the far way over 1,200 miles to the west and all the way back to uh, Kodiak, Alaska, on the east. The allies would get in their little skin boats and take their families, and uh, they would go across the sea. Living off the sea, as they traveled to get to this uh, 600 miles. They would go in their little uh, boats, get to the place where there was in the tree, and their kids, of course, would go with them. Sometimes it would take five, six, seven years. And then these kids grew up, and they uh, found wives when they got there. They found wives, and they went. They are traveling, and so they kept the race very healthy. And then the Russians, they came in, and they saw these people around the tree doing just, in other words, God tells us, you know, this is the holiest spot on earth, or this is the spot I want you, we want you to visit, like uh, Jews and the Christians have Jerusalem and so forth. So anyway, the Russians came in, they saw the people, they couldn't talk to them, so they had no idea what they were doing. They had no idea that it was a very deep, and another thing, God had made this island of Nikolsky the island of peace. There was was to be absolutely no war and absolutely no killing. The tribes would sometimes they get into family feuds and so forth among the Aleuts and would kill each other, but uh, mostly a very peaceful people. But they did have their rules and regulations, and so they followed this. That there was this island, they were to put away their spears and their, you know, weapons and this kind of thing. And so the Aleuts, they met the Russians, and they, they thought the Russians had come to help, you know, to visit the tree and to respect it and to love them. And said the Russians said, look at those stupid people worshiping that stupid tree. That tree's got to go, man. And so the Aleuts with rocks and spears and so forth, they tried to defend the tree, they brought in their axes and stuff, and they cut the tree down, and they killed it. They had their cannons and stuff. They just, they just killed thousands and thousands of Aleuts. This is the beginning of genocide. And where I had my fish cannery, when I finally got uh, that far along, I got this fish cannery in the Aleutian Islands that I built from scratch. And the place where I had the cannery, they killed something like 10,000 Aleut people because these Aleuts, when they came home, they were... Uh, Russians had taken their wives because they wanted their wives, somebody to sleep with them during the winters, and so they just went and raided the village and took the wives and took them aboard their boats. So the alleys, they tried to get their wives back, and uh, so they lined them up and they would bet with each other how many bullets one, uh, you know, they could get through one uh, through the alleys. One would, uh, would go how far through how many alleys? And so they killed about 10,000 Aleuts, mm. what you're point to. That's part of the genocide. Mm. Anyway, I wrote a book on it called The Aleuts. You said
0: the Americans
1: also... When, when well, they sold Alaska. When they sold Alaska to... Uh, the Russians sold Alaska to America. But they uh, enslaved the people, more or less. And they took them, you know, for the fur trade and stuff, they took them up to the Pribilof Islands and made them work, slave labor. And then even during World War II, they moved all the Aleuts out of the Aleutian Islands down into the Ketchikan area where it's wet all the time, and they're not used to that kind of weather. And the them died of pneumonia and man-made diseases and so forth.
0: So when you arrived, how many foreigners were there?
1: They're not really foreigners. Some were born out there, actually. It was, you know, they had uh, Caucasian children and... Half Aleut, and half something else, mm-hmm. the sailors and so forth, mm-hmm. but the families that were out there, the fifty families, they were mostly Aleut. They and were the amount of foreigners that we would consider like Americans. Mm-hmm. There was a marshal u s marshal there, and there was a public recorder to record he was a American white, mm-hmm. and then the guy that kept the store, that was oh the school teacher. There was a school teacher who was Caucasian. That's all.
0: Were the Aleutians wary of these people as
1: well? Oh, well, yeah, of course. They didn't trust them at all. In fact, they hated them also. Like I said, it took me about nine years before I was fully accepted.
0: And what do you think was the thing that got them to finally accept you?
1: Well, number one, we love the people. And we loved the children, and the children would come over and play with my children. And slowly, 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 they began to understand what was going on. And then, of course, I started the fish business, and this gave these people that had been living on government welfare, finally they gave them employment. We were the first ones. We started the king crab business up there, the deadliest catch. That was started by two brothers and myself, that business. There was no king crab fishery before that. So I gave these people work. I had something like 72 people working in my cannery, making a good salary, and they were able to have heat in their houses and, you know, heat with oil and so forth and electricity in their homes and running water and all that kind of stuff.
0: What were the circumstances that had you decide to leave the Aleutian Islands?
1: Now I had this cannery, and this cannery was one of the most modern. I had gone to, down to Seattle in the... Small Business Administration, and I got a quarter of a million dollars. And at that particular time, that would be like uh, a billion dollars today, okay? And so I had this mortgage on my plant, and I put in the best equipment that you could possibly buy, stainless steel belts and hydraulic systems and refrigeration and you name it. And when I the first year I was up there, I put up 42 cases of salmon, and I used a hand seamer and a uh, pressure cooker. The last year that I was there, when I I sold the the cannery, I was putting up 500 tons of frozen king crab and 100,000 cases of fish. So this is grown now into a really big operation. And a big company in America, they said uh, they wanted me to lower my price, and I refused to do it because I was paying the fishermen more than they were paying them. And now there's other businesses coming in people are seeing that this is This king crab business is really a a lucrative business. So they wanted me to come into line with price. They wanted to fix prices. I wouldn't do it. And uh, so they told me, well, we're going to put you out of business. And so one day my broker gets a, uh, in Seattle, he gets the word that the bank won't advance me any money anymore. And the way the business worked, I would take, ship $100,000 worth of fish to Seattle. My bank then would put $70,000 in my account and as soon as the, 30, the 30% came in, why they would take out their interest and their costs and whatever left over they put in my bank account. But I'm always running in uh, arrears, you know, they're, uh, running on bank money all, all the time. It's one of the problems we're facing today is the you know, problem with the banks. But I had no problem with the banks. But then when they said the banks would give me my advances, I, I, I went down and I found out that They said they either do business with me or they're going to do business with them. and They had all kinds of, they're the largest canning companies in America. And so they ganged up on all of us small operators. They decided to put us out of business. Mm -hmm. I told my broker in Seattle to get rid of the fish, clean it all out, sell it at cost. And he said, well, if about three days ago you'd have told me to do that, I could have cleaned the warehouse out and the freezer out, and I could have gotten rid of all the fish. But then they named the same big company, and they said, "Well, this company now has put a hundred thousand cases of your product on the market at fifty cents under cost." Now I don't have any string beans or carrots or pineapple or grapefruit chunks or anything else. All they have to do is up the price of green beans a nickel case, and they make all they lose on on fish. So they could undercut everybody. And then they get, like, my mortgage. Now, my mortgage would come due, and I couldn't make the payment. Then they'd make 50 cents on the dollar, and they steal this modern million-dollar plant. they steal it away from me. Mm. And they get all everybody else the same way, and they were forced into this. But anyway, I had always always considered that God was my partner. Stayed in Seattle about six months. Couldn't get anywhere. Decided to go back out to the Illusion Islands, because we have a... A 19-day fast every year. It's a very special prayer time and so forth. And Baha'is all over the world, we observe this fast. We don't eat from sunrise to sunset. Before sunrise we can eat, and after sunset we can eat. Every religion of the past has had a fast. We also have a fast. The, I went home for the fast, and while I was home, and all the time I was really worried about this business and what's going to happen to people work for me, all of a sudden I say in a, God doeth whatsoever he willeth. And I thought, oh, my God, they're not my people. Those are God's people. They're not my fishermen. They're God's fishermen. And for some unknown reason, he wants them to go back into that poverty. In his children, it's not mine. And I said, I've been trying to play God. And I got down on my knees and asked for forgiveness and so forth. Then I flew down to Seattle. I was going to sell off, sell off all of the cannery and all the machinery and all the equipment. The generators and the freezers and the forklifts and the dock cranes and everything else piece by piece, and I'd be able to pay the mortgage off, but I would have nothing left. And then I thought, Well, Jesus, when He went in, he, when he says, Shake the dust off your feet when you leave, don't take anything out of that village when you leave. And I said, Well, that's what I've got to do. I come here with nothing, I'm going out with nothing. So that's what we decided to leave. Decided to leave at that point, and I flew down to Seattle. I arrived on a Thursday. I didn't call the brokers or the bankers or the fish houses or anybody. I called the Baha'is of Seattle. And they said, oh, Janabi, you know, thank God you called. we have been you've got this big program going on here, and we've sent out invitations, and we've got radio out and television out, and everybody has worked really hard to get this program together. And the speaker just called in, our out-of-town speaker, and she can't come would you be our speaker at this big event? And I said, well, yeah, I will so. I stayed in I stayed in my hotel room all day Friday. And when I came the meeting was wonderful. There's about 1500 people at this meeting and this in Seattle and it was in 1964. Okay.
0: That's a good sized crowd.
1: Yeah, that was a big big meeting. It was really a, and it was, it was very exciting and there was a real excitement in the air. A lot of people were extremely interested, you know, and we were talking to the Baha'is and stuff. But then I went back to the hotel room. Now, this is on Friday, remember. In our hotel rooms, we didn't have television. In those days, they had one in the lobby. That was it. And everybody was gathered around this television set, and they were oohing and on, oh, and wasn't that horrible. So I went and looked to see what they were looking at in this hotel. And here's this guy with his hair mussed up and a handful of papers in his hand, and he's Jumping up and down, and he's red-faced, and all. He says, "Oh, Kodiak Island has sank into the sea. Great, Alaskan earthquake, the highest recorded earthquake in the history of mankind." And then he went on and says, "Aleutian Islands no longer exist." Oh my God! So I turned away from. I turned away from that television set, and I said, "I would say to myself, I'm content with the will of God." Oh my God. When I got in the elevator, I put my finger on the button at IMCon, and I stopped. That earthquake lasted. That was a great Alaskan earthquake in 1964, Good Friday earthquake. It killed people even clear down here in Hawaii. It was a horrible thing, and it, but it, it didn't touch my cannery or anything up there. And so I was able to sell my all the stuff I had in the warehouse, and clear the warehouses out without a profit, and... I got somebody else to take over running the cannery while I went off to Mexico. That's the short version.
0: Uh, that's an amazing story. So did you know any Spanish?
1: No, I didn't.
0: What happened when you first got to Mexico? Well, I started to learn Spanish. That's yeah. number one. Now, you, your kids at this point were what, 11 and 12?
1: Well, now you see, it was out there for 10 years, so the, the, the oldest boy would be 14. Okay. What was it like
0: for them to go to Mexico at that age?
1: Well, they liked it. It was a big upgrade from uh, the Illusion Island. <laughs> so they were ready to go? Yeah, and they were homeschooled. They were mm. homeschooled in the Illusions. So mm-hmm. uh, no problem with our schooling. And all of those kids, are, of course, right now I have, I had eight children. Okay, I have eight children. They're still around. And I have 18 grandchildren. And I have, Six great grandchildren. That's great. Like my dynasty. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so tell me about Mexico. Tell me about your experiences in Mexico.
1: Well, again, you see, like the the big earthquake, it solved all the problems I had in the world in three minutes. And you, I'm not going to pray up an earthquake and you know have people die from something like that. Right. But this was God's answer. To those guys. The, the important thing about that. Every cannery, every cannery and every uh, facility that was owned by this big key company that was going to to put me out of business, mm-hmm. that earthquake, every single one of those businesses, they lost in Alaska. They lost everyone. Not a single one of their facilities got by. They were all washed away or smashed to pieces or you know, put out of business. See, because I still look at that. And I see that's, you always say, well, that's a miracle. Mm-hmm. that, you know, in just three minutes, all the problems that I had in the world, and all I did was say, I'm content with the will of God. But one of the things you have to be careful when you say, I'm content with the will of God, is he's going to be saying, oh, yeah, let's find out. <laughs> yeah. So when I thought my whole family had been destroyed out there on the Aleutian Islands, that was a pretty heavy test. But anyway, it finished so it solved all the problems. So now I'm free, and i got somebody else running the can, and the can, the can- the still running full of Everything's being paid. Everything being taken care of. I'm working on profit sharing, and so I got a good income, and uh, that's uh, I was self-supporting in Mexico from the cannery.
0: So you did not have to work in Mexico. I didn't.
1: And uh, I ended up. I went to the state of Oaxaca, and that was in 1964.
0: So how did you go about getting the people to get?
1: I went from. You know, I went out there, and I went around to. uh, I'd go out to a village, and I'd walk in, and I would talk to the people and go through the town. First, I'd go to the head, head, head man of the town, or whatever you want to call him, and I would say, you know, I got a movie I'm going to show, and I like to show the movie, and so I had a little generator in the back of my truck and show this movie, Su Nombre es Uno. His name is One. And I would go through the village, and then I had a, loudspe- a loudspeaker on the truck, and I and I I'd you know. Come, new messenger of God has come. I'm going to show a movie tonight, and everybody's welcome. It's free, doesn't cost anything. And usually, most of the villagers show up. And at the end, of a, the end of about a year and a half, I, saw, I had something like 95 villages that were alive, pretty much. And what did your wife do? She stayed home and homeschooled the kids.
0: And how long were you in Mexico? Two and a half years, no, four and a half years. What were the circumstances that had you leave Mexico? Did the leave? government
1: kicked me out.
0: And why was that?
1: Well, because they figured I was working in Mexico. Because nobody comes down there and just comes down there, and they, they're tourists, and they go back home, or they come down there, and if they're staying there, they're usually they're working. And so they said I was working, and I said, no, I'm not working. And they said, yes, you are. And what you have to say you can go out now, but you can't come back in. So I... Packed up my family, and said it must be time to go. Mm. And I went. And where did you go? Well, then I went to international teaching. Covered 77 countries. I did teaching projects in 77 countries. I did what we call nine day uh, spiritual transformation classes, this is what I did mostly. And we did a, uh, a big project in Alaska called uh, uh-huh. Massive Encounter, where we were to reach and teach everybody in Alaska.
0: And what time span did you go through seventy seven countries?
1: well, from the when I got got out of Mexico, I went back to the illusion Islands and I sold my business in the seventies. I gave the money to the to Alaska and that's how they bought their new center and all that stuff up there.
0: You said you traveled to seventy seven countries
1: Yes yeah, I started I went from country to country I went to you know like the Philippines and Taiwan and uh, Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Uh, New Zealand, Australia.
0: And you said you stayed about nine days in each one of those?
1: The longest I stayed in any place was I spent two and a half years in the Philippines. I spent four and a half years in uh, Taiwan. I spent probably around two years in uh, India. I spent a few months in Nepal I spent a few months in Germany and a few months in uh, the other uh, countries in Euro- Central Europe. Then I spent eight and a half years in uh, Japan, and I spent about a year in uh, Trinidad and Tobago. I spent probably six months in West Africa and another six months in East Africa, covering all of the countries in, uh, in Africa.
0: So why was it that you spent a significant longer time in countries like the Philippines and India and Taiwan?
1: Well, it depended on the teaching project, you see.
0: They were longer-term and teaching in, in projects. In Taiwan, of course,
1: but now, because most of the money that came from the cannery I had, I had given to the faith in order to avoid. I had a quarter of a million dollars worth of income tax I was going to have to pay when I sold the cannery, and I didn't want to pay that. To to kill people and war war machines. So I, before I sold the business, I gave the money. I gave the the cannery to the faith. So all the money went to the went to the faith. Very little of it came to me. But by then I'd run out of money. So by the time I got to uh, the Philippines, I was running out of money. Mm-hmm. By the time I got to Taiwan, I was out of money. So I had to go to work. And so I I was right there in Taiwan. And so I would work work five days a week, teaching English. I taught English in uh, t- Taiwan and in uh, Japan both. And it was because I had to earn my own way and make my expenses.
0: So after this whirlwind tour of, it sounds like, what, it was about 10 years that you traveled these 77 countries?
1: Yeah. Not just going in and out of countries, you understand. There's 77 countries. I actually did teaching projects in all those countries, like Greenland and the, uh, way up in Baker's Lake in Canada, and mm-hmm. some of the remotest places on earth, down the Amazon Basin, down in South America, and so forth.
0: Well, what was the last country you went to?
1: The last country? Hawaiian Islands. And That's when... where I'm at right now. The sun is shining, the birds are singing, <laughs> the flowers are blooming, the turf surf is up, so why don't you come visit?
0: So how long have you been in the Hawaiian Islands?
1: About 11 years, something like that, 11, 12 years. But I had been here before. I had put on programs on all the islands here years ago. So how are you supporting yourself now? Well, I'm tired, and then I got retired. <laughs> so, I Social Security and so forth, so and where, pension plans and things like that.
0: Right. So where did you live before Hawaii?
1: Japan and you were teaching English there and I made good money I, I charged $20 an hour to teach English and I took five students and I worked from seven o'clock in the morning to like 10 o'clock at night And I put the money in the bank so that's how right now you know I'm living off a lot of that
0: what were the circumstances that had you leave Japan and go to Hawaii
1: well, I had been here before, and it makes good sense. You're going to retire. You might just uh-huh. go to a place where the sun is shining. And you don't yeah. have to have all of these uh, heaters and stuff to keep your house warm in right. the winter and air conditioning in the summer. And It's springtime all the time here. doesn't sound like a good idea.
0: Yeah. So it was time to retire, so you had to get back to the United States.
1: Yeah. Now I'm writing books. I've written something like tell five me, or six books. Tell me about your books. I wrote a book called Follow the Instructions, and it's about teaching. Uh, the first one I wrote was from night to night, from N-I-G-H-T to K-N-I-G-H-T. Uh-huh. That's about the what I was just telling you about, the Aleutian Islands and the genocide and that kind of uh-huh. stuff. And then the, another book I wrote was uh, the, the Story of the Baba and Baha'u'llah, and I simplified it, and it was done because my wife wanted to translated into Japanese. Mm-hmm. Now, the Bob again, is like a, a forerunner. He came before Baha'u'llah, as all the great teachers from God have come. He was a guy that came ahead of time to tell people that the great teacher was coming and prepare yourself for him who God shall make manifest. So that's the story of the Bob and Baha'u'llah. Is all about that. I took 21 books or 22 books that I researched to get the information as correct as I can. The story of the Baba Baha'u'llah. And then I got the book called The Aleut. I wrote that. That is all about the genocide. It's a historical novel. And the book I just published the 1st of August, In the Heart of Words. And that's about taking the hidden words and don't be satisfied with words. Look for the spiritual truth that lies hidden, hidden in the heart of words. And so that's about really searching out the writing. I just took the hidden words and Went in there to look for the spiritual meaning that lies hidden in its depths, and it's the kind of book where what is read is mostly quotes, and the quotes inspire the people to think about what they're reading, and then try to apply it to their life. So that's what that book's about.
0: Now, what are the hidden words?
1: Oh, the hidden words is a, a book that's very short verses that tell us about how we should be living, and how, for example, the first hidden word says. My first counsel is this: possess a pure, kindly, and radiant heart, and thine shall be a sovereignty, ancient, imperishable, and everlasting. So now, just think about that for a minute. Oh, son of spirit, my first counsel is this: this counsel is something you usually pay for counseling, but it's come free. <laughs> And then he tells us, possess a pure heart. So let's just work on that. And if we get that done, then we can start worrying about doing something else. The world really needs that purity of heart and purity of spirit. So that's what that's about.
0: Well, Janabi, thank you so much for sharing your story.
1: Well, you're quite welcome. Now, let me give you a a, a little wide web. It's uh, best, B-E-S-T... (laughs) T-U-B-L-I-S-H-E-R, bestpublisher.org, <laughs> okay. O-R-G. And you go in there and you look at Janabi and you'll have a picture of me so you can see what I was like after I became a bouncer.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: Okay, old buddy. Thanks for having me.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Janabi Caldwell, a Baha'i who has traveled all around the world for the Baha'i faith and is now residing in Hawaii. He is an author and his books include The Alut, From Night to Night, and In the Heart of Words. For a copy of this and other programs, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org where you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective. So Northampton 103.3 FM your Valley Free Radio station streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org